Good morning. Um, our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 21. Um, the Bible is God's word for us today. Um, if you've been at Village before, um, you'll probably have heard us say um, that we hold the scripture in highest regards, um, and that's because um, we believe that it's his word, um, his gift to the church. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, describes the scriptures as God-breathed. Um, through the scriptures, um, God reveals himself and his character to us. Um, so in light of that, let's hear God speak to us this morning from the Gospel of Luke. So Luke 13, verse 10 to 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said he, these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Um, God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for... Um, the incredible truth um, and hope that we can draw from it. Um, I pray now for Andrew as he comes and speaks to us. Um, I pray that you would um, fill him with your spirit and give him wisdom and clarity. Um, and yeah, I pray that we would all have um, yeah, open hearts to hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, we're still in the Gospel of Luke. We're going through uh, Luke's Gospel uh, week by week, passage by passage. Um, and uh, if you're new to our church, you might not have heard of Sermon Bingo. Uh, but this is not my idea. Somebody made it up about me. Apparently, I say the same things over and over again. So nobody shouted Bingo because I'm about to talk about space. And I think that's definitely something that you guys think is bingo-worthy. Uh, in February 1930, scientists discovered and proved the existence of what the time was called Planet X. Does anybody know what Planet X is? Planet X is not a brand of bikes. It is a brand of bikes, but it's also the planet Pluto. See, two for one there, bikes and space, all one go. Um, Pluto is on the far reaches of the solar system, and it's since been downgraded to not a planet um, because it is only a sixth the size of the Earth. It is smaller than the size of our moon, actually. Um, but 66 years on from its discovery, the Hubble Space Telescope took the first detailed pictures of Pluto. And at the time, scientists couldn't believe what they were seeing, and it gave them all kinds of insight and knowledge uh, that they had never had before. And they were blown away by these images. But then, 
20 years after that, in 2016, that's right, isn't it? Yes, 96 to 2016 is 20 years. Um, scientists received the most recent photos that we have of Pluto from the New Horizons probe. And the difference was staggering. Like not only had the technology advanced and improved, uh, New Horizons, this probe was, was able to get up close to Pluto and take uh, high resolutions, detailed pictures of the surface of the planet. And, and the scientists uh, couldn't, have, uh, couldn't have imagined what they saw in these pictures. And suddenly, everything they thought they, they, they thought they knew about Pluto, they had to rethink. Even though they had been studying it in detail, it, it was nothing compared to what they received when they, they, the, the true image was revealed. And this is a bit like Jesus, the gospel, and the kingdom of God in Northern Ireland. Bear with me. I think our unique religious history tends to mean that, that everybody here has some experience or, or some knowledge of, of Jesus, of the church. Or at the very least, everybody has some opinion of the church. A lot of people in our part of the world have had either positive or negative experiences, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, of the church. And I'm sure that you've come across this with, with your friends and colleagues, or these misconceptions about Jesus, the church, and his kingdom. For example, I know one guy who grew up in a Catholic nationalist background, and he, he became a Christian. He met Jesus, and his family wanted to know that if he now supported the DUP. Or I remember a number of years ago when I worked in a cafe, so I say a number of years ago, like 20 years ago, um, and I invited one of the guys I worked with to, it was the time of the Six Nations, I said, let's go to the pub and watch the rugby match. And he said, but you're a Christian, you're not allowed to go to the pub. And maybe you've encountered things like this yourself, misconceptions, and, and often Jesus, the gospel, and his kingdom are written off by people as irrelevant or unnecessary because people already think they know what it's about and have decided they don't want it or don't need it. And sometimes it seems that in our context, sharing the gospel is as much about correcting what people think is the gospel. Just like with Pluto, people need that clearer image. They need a clearer view of Jesus. And, and, and unfortunately, it's not just always people outside the church. Sometimes people inside the church, sometimes us, sometimes I, need a clearer image of Jesus, the gospel, and the kingdom of God. And this passage, I think, where Jesus interacts with this dear woman and, 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 and with this ruler of the synagogue, it gives us an invitation to ask ourselves about what we believe and hold, true, hold to be true about Jesus, the gospel, and the kingdom of God. Do we have wrong ideas? Do we value religion over compassion? Do we need a clearer view of Jesus, the gospel, and the kingdom of God? You see, it's totally possible to be present in a good church, in a Bible-believing church, and still hold on to things that Jesus doesn't call us to. So this morning, this is, is really simply an invitation to have a fresh look at Jesus, to see him as he is, to see his kingdom displayed, uh, and to hear him ex explain it. And, and through this interaction in the, in the synagogue, we see the incredible compassion of Jesus and we see a powerful display of his kingdom, and we see him rebuke one of the religious leaders, and, and, and we see him explain the kingdom of God. And quite simply, this morning, I think the Lord is calling us to marvel at the compassion of Jesus and look forward to his coming kingdom. Marvel at the compassion of Jesus and look forward to his coming kingdom. And, and if we leave this gathering this morning, marveling at the compassionate nature of Jesus, and with a desire to see his kingdom come, then I think we'll have grasped 
the reason Luke recorded these events. This, passion is about, or this passage is about compassion, religion, and the kingdom of God. So the first thing we see is the compassion of Jesus. If you have a look at the start of the, the, the passage, verses 10 to 13 with me. Now he, that's Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Uh, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. We don't know exactly where the synagogue was. We know it's somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem. And, and synagogues in Jesus' time were essentially like the local church, a building probably smaller than this one in every little town where people could gather to hear the scriptures read and taught and worship God. And, and as this is a Sabbath, this is what's going on. And there is a woman at the synagogue this Sabbath, a woman who's been afflicted by a disabling spirit for 18 years. That's what Luke says. And I think Luke frames it this way for a reason. Luke, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, Luke was a, a medical doctor. And you would almost think that he would focus on her physical symptoms, right? But he labels it as a disabling spirit. In other words, there's a spiritual element to this. Now, this isn't demon possession. Jesus doesn't speak to any demons or, um, or cast any demons out like we see him do in other places. But in verse 16, he says of her condition that Satan has bound her for 18 years. This is spiritual oppression. Her condition isn't the result of something she has done. It's nothing to do with her. This is a condition that has just happened to her. Her condition is the result of sin in the world. And Jesus sees it not as just physical, but as spiritual. And often in our modern context, we're, we're too quick to make everything just about the physical, aren't we? But the truth is that we are embodied spiritual beings. We are body, soul, and mind. But you can't separate those. And you know this to be true, right? If, if, you're, say if you're anxious or stressed, you probably get physical symptoms. You get that sick feeling in your stomach, or maybe you get headaches or, or tight muscles, whatever it may be. These things are spiritual too, and often when you have feelings of depression or anxiety, it affects your trust and faith in God. Now, scholars, um, theologians have taken this passage and taken it to uh, medical people, and from the description that Luke, Dr. Luke gives of this woman, um, they reckon that what she is most likely suffering from is a condition called ankylosing spondylitis, which some of you may be familiar with. Um, it's a condition where the bones of the spine fuse together. And over time, if it's not treated like it couldn't have been in Jesus' time, they fuse together to the point where your, your spine fuses together and you become bent over in two. And nowadays, there are things that can be done to minimize it and slow it down and all that kind of thing. But obviously, in Jesus' day, those things didn't exist. And so after 18 years, 18 years, this woman was completely unable to stand up straight it went untreated, so it was extremely painful. She probably was fatigued all the time. She had swelling in her joints and in her back, and there was no cure. This woman, for 18 years, has been carrying an, an incredibly immense, heavy burden of suffering, pain, disfigurement, discomfort, shame, unable to look people in the face, hearing the whispers of people gossip about her as, as they walk past, or on the other hand, being completely ignored as people pretend not to see her. 
But look at this. Verse 12. Four words. When Jesus saw her. Isn't that incredibly powerful? Jesus sees her. In her affliction, in her pain, in her loneliness, in her shame, Jesus sees her. Jesus sees the effects of sin on this woman. Jesus sees how Satan has bound her. And in this, his extraordinary compassion, Jesus says, no more. This woman is a daughter of Abraham, meaning not just that she is a Jew by nature, but that she is in the family of God by faith. And Jesus says, no, Satan and sin do not get to do this to my sister. Jesus sees her in her suffering, and, and his compassion means that he can't not act. The compassion of Jesus just floods out of him, and he calls this woman over. I always think it's funny that, you know, the woman with the disability says, come over here. It's like, you know, your disability doesn't control you. And just as he spoke the world into being, he speaks her affliction out of being. See what happens there? Woman... Be freed from your disability. And immediately the woman is healed. Immediately. See, when, when the Lord of creation speaks, creation doesn't wait. When the Lord of lords speaks, the power of Satan melts away. There is no waiting on surgery. There's no gradual straightening of her spine. The Lord speaks and she is healed. Jesus doesn't need permission. He doesn't have to wait for anybody. He has total power and authority over all creation, over all spiritual powers, and he uses it with extreme compassion. 18 years of pain, discomfort, worry, loneliness, shame, anxiety, and in an instant, in an instant, Jesus sets her free. And as she stands up, think about this. I heard, uh, sorry, I read someone talking about this. As she stands up. For the first time in 18 years, she could look someone eye to eye, and the person she is looking at is Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Jesus raises her up to see him face to face. Church, the compassion of Jesus is this, that he sees us in our suffering. The compassion of Jesus is that he sees us in our suffering. I want you to hear this this morning. Jesus sees you in your suffering. Large or small, no matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, what you have been going through, Jesus sees you. No matter if it's sickness or mental illness or anxiety or relationship pain or lack of relationship pain or loneliness or barrenness or money worries or help, feeling helpless or feeling unworthy or feeling unaccepted or feeling useless, whatever it may be, Jesus sees you in that suffering. And listen, maybe you think God has been absent this is what we do, isn't it? As soon as any hint of suffering comes in, we say, where is God? And maybe it's even been year after year of affliction that nobody knows or, or, or sees. But Jesus sees you. And not only that, he knows what it's like. He has suffered too. He has suffered for you. And the wonderful thing about suffering and the fact that Jesus sees us in our suffering, it's not, that, it's not just that he sees us in our suffering, he is doing something in our suffering. You see, to be in the place of suffering is actually, actually to be in the place of blessing. Now, that sounds totally um, counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because <laughs> we're conditioned to reject suffering, to run away from suffering, to minimize suffering, to minimize all discomfort. 
But to be in the place of suffering is to be in the place of blessing because it means that you are a candidate for God's restoring power. To be in the place of neediness and weakness is to be in the place of blessing because it means that you have to rely on Jesus, right? And when we're relying on Jesus, of course we're in the place of blessing. To suffer is to be blessed if we are relying on Jesus. And, and maybe that is you. Maybe you have been suffering. Maybe you're tired of feeling weak and needy. But this is the best place to be because it's in this place that you can experience the heart of the gospel. What is the heart of the gospel? The heart of the gospel is that in our weakness, the strength of Jesus works for our salvation. That's the gospel. In our neediness, Jesus meets our need. This is why Jesus says, uh, when he was teaching one of his most well-documented sermons, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are needy. Blessed are those who are weak. Blessed are the poor in spirit who realize their spiritual weakness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, you can only receive the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, when you realize that you are in need of a savior. This woman couldn't heal herself. Nobody could save her. I'm sure she had plenty of days where she was thinking, if only there was some cure, if only I could find someone who could give me some hope. She was completely dependent on the compassion of Jesus. And so it is for all of us. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. In our suffering, God is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Jesus uses our suffering to make us realize our need for him. Jesus is calling us in our suffering to trust him, to put our complete dependence on him. And maybe even that, for you, that's for the first time. And, and, and we can trust him because he sees us in our suffering. He is the God who has suffered and he is full of compassion. You see, what Jesus does for this woman physically, he, he is, does for all of us who believe in him. Sin has weighed us down and twisted us. We have been bound by Satan, but in his compassion, because of the great love with which he loves us, Jesus sets us free. He comes along, he says, come here, and he says, be free. And then he raises us up to see him face to face. Marvel at the compassion of Jesus. This woman having received the, the compassion and restoring power of Jesus, what does she do? And she glorified God. Immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Of course she did. Like, this is a woman of faith. She's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. She's a woman of faith. And so of course she recognizes God's goodness in her life when she is healed and she glorifies God. But not everybody glorifies God. You see, the ruler of the synagogue had a very different response. And in this next section, we see a correction by Jesus. A correction by Jesus. We've seen the compassion of Jesus. Now we see a correction of Jesus. I'm going to read verses 14 to 17 again. Uh, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people. <clears throat> so picture what's going on here. This is, Jesus is teaching in the Sabbath. And then he heals this woman. And then it's like he's the guest speaker in the church. And then the pastor of the church comes up and, be, and corrects the guy while he's still there. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. It's demeaning to Jesus. And he speaks to the people. Um, 
And he says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Now, the ruler of the synagogue wasn't a priest. It's not like the high priest in the temple. But he was a person who was in charge of the worship in the wee local synagogue. Uh, he, he, he organized the, the, the Sabbath services and all that kind of stuff. And he is clearly a very religious man. And he protests that Jesus, by healing this woman, has broken the Sabbath. And you have to ask, why would he take issue with somebody being healed? Why would he not be rejoicing that this woman who was afflicted for so long is finally free? Well, like many of us, He's been looking at a blurry picture. He has wrong ideas about Jesus, the gospel, and the kingdom of God. You see, I think that he has a true desire to worship God. I, I think that. I, and and he, is, he is trying to be faithful to the scriptures and to the law. But he has entirely missed the point of the scriptures. He's like those scientists studying the blurry pictures of Pluto. Everything he thinks he knows is wrong. He needs a clearer view. See, he's a legalist. He thinks the way to God is, is by keeping all the rules. He thinks he can stay close to God by trying his harder and being a good religious person. He thinks that if only he can do his very best and, and keep all the rules, then, then God will accept him. And it has led him to a point where, where he would not do for a disabled woman what he would do for his beast of burden. You see how, you see how legal, legalistic religion can twist and corrupt what God has given us? He would not do for a woman who has been disabled for, 20, or for 18 years what he would do for an oxen, for a donkey. He values religion more than a daughter created in the image of God. He thinks that if he can do his very best and keep all the rules, God will accept him. But it's the woman who is accepted by Jesus this day. You see, the ruler of the synagogue has it all together. He, he knows he's a good, upstanding citizen. He knows the scriptures. He keeps the Sabbath. He doesn't just go to church. He leads the church. The woman, on the other hand, well, well, she is in complete need. All she has to offer is her pain and suffering and years of prayers through tears. And yet she's the candidate for the grace of Jesus that day. And the, the correction, the, the, this is the correction by Jesus. That religion cannot save us. Religion cannot save us. We can't offer Jesus our religiousness. Going to church cannot save you. Being a good Christian cannot save you. The only way to be a candidate for the love and compassion of Jesus is to recognize our complete and utter need for salvation. And listen, we need to be careful that we don't carry the same misunderstanding as this man. See, maybe like this man, we, we think we know the Scriptures, but we can know the Scriptures and still not see Jesus, right? And in his attempt to keep the law, he had broken it entirely. What is the law? The law is to love the Lord your God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes 
we think that the way of Jesus is about following all the rules and being good at prayer and attending church gatherings and sharing the gospel with our friends and being good at prayer. But listen to what the Bible says. This is Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 to 2. And by the way, this is a scripture uh, that the ruler of the synagogue would have known off by heart and probably often recited. It says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You see, Jesus has not come to bind us up with, with more rule keeping. He has come to set the captives free. He hasn't come to, to weigh down our hearts with more religion. He has come to bind up, as in bandage up broken and wounded hearts. He's come to proclaim liberty, to open prison doors, to comfort those who mourn. Just like this woman, he has come to raise up the lowly. And as long as we miss this, we're going to continue to be weighed down by feeling useless because we're not good enough. Or being crushed by the weight of unworthiness because we just can't find it in ourselves to be a good enough Christian. And listen, if you're someone who is relying on your good works, and you think, I'm doing a pretty good job, or, or, or you're relying on your religiousness to save you, then you need to hear this rebuke of Jesus. But, but, but we need to hear the, the comfort too. It's my, it's my feeling, and, and from people I talk to, so many of us are, are crushed by the weight of failure, and it leads us to even question if we're loved by Jesus at all. And it's a, it's a, it's a horrible lie from the depths of hell. We've become like this woman, spiritually bent over double and two, weighed down by the weight of our own failures. And, and like this woman, we've been bound by Satan with his lies that tell us we need to be better, that we need to do more, that we need to be a better person. And then when we inevitably can't, we're weighed down even more. But there is freedom in Jesus. There is freedom in Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, be healed? What does he say? He says in verse 12, woman, you are freed. You are freed. Listen, if you're, if you, if you're like that, and I suspect a lot of us are, feeling weighed down because we keep feeling and we can't be a good enough Christian and I, I, don't, I don't pray in the way I should or I've done the same thing over again. I've let Jesus down. I've let my friends down. I've let my family down. Whatever it is, I keep sinning in the same way. Jesus is saying to you, be free. Stand up. You, you don't have to carry the weight of your sin and failures. I've already carried your fears and failures. I've carried your sins and your sorrows, and I've carried them all the way to the cross. And when I was nailed to the cross, they were nailed to the cross with me. And when I died, they died with me. Church, the correction we need in our thinking is that we do not have to be crushed and weighed down. Jesus died so that we could be free. Keeping the rules is not keeping close to Jesus. Jesus keeps us close to him because he kept all the rules that we couldn't keep. And so you know what that means? I find this incredibly freeing, by the way. This means that when we can't keep the rules, we are perfect candidates for the grace of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what I need to hear this morning. I don't know about you. Now, 
As a caveat, this doesn't mean that we don't strive to live for him. It doesn't mean that we uh, just neglect holiness and, and, and we don't take righteousness seriously and we don't strive to love our, love our neighbors as ourselves. That we don't strive to, for purity in our lives. We don't, we don't try to be like Christ. Of course we do. It means that we do strive for those, thing, those things. We do take them seriously, but we do them in response to, because of the incredible compassion and grace that we have received. And then, when we inevitably sin and fail, we're not crushed. We're not weighed down because we know that we have received his grace. You see, it's interesting that all of this is happening on the Sabbath. And Luke, <laughs> I, he's, I think he's like maybe the smartest guy in the Bible, apart from Jesus. He, uh, he keeps saying the Sabbath over and over again. You see this? He's, he wants us to know this is happening on the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath in the Jewish cult was the seventh day of the week, Saturday in our calendar, which was set aside every day to be a holy day, a day of rest, and a day of worship. And it was a reminder to the people that on the seventh day of creation, God rested, and this is a pattern, and in the same pattern that humans should rest too. It was a practice put in place by God to remind the people that their ultimate rest was found in Him. It was, it, was a, it was a religious pattern pointing forward, pointing to something bigger than just the day of the week, you see? But the ruler of the synagogue was missing the meaning behind it. He, he just didn't get what it was all about. He, he saw the very thing, the very good thing that God had given, a day of rest, and he took it and turned it into just another rule to be followed to try and make himself good. Man, do we do that to Jesus all the time? The good things he gives us, we turn them around and, and, and make them into something we have to try and do so that he'll accept us. But look what, look what Jesus says in verse 16. I want to just zoom in here for a second. He says, And ought not this woman, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Listen, he's, Jesus is saying, Your ideas about the kingdom of God are wrong. The whole point of the Sabbath is to point to the fuller and truer and better and everlasting rest that we find in God. The day is just a moment, a rhythm to remind us and prepare us for the, 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 the true and real and eternal rest that we find in God. And true Sabbath is rest and freedom. It's to stop from striving. It's to lay down our burdens. It's to stop wrestling with life and simply rely on God. And so it was entirely appropriate, Jesus is saying, for this daughter of Abraham to be healed on the Sabbath. Because her healing is a picture of the eternal freedom and rest that is coming with the kingdom of Jesus. It's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that Jesus turns up to this synagogue on this particular Sabbath when this woman is going to be here. It's no coincidence that Jesus heals her on the Sabbath. In fact, it was a it was necessary to free this woman bound by Satan and to do it on the Sabbath because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he completes his work of redemption on the Sabbath just as God completed his work of creation on the Sabbath. God rested on the Sabbath after the work of creation is complete. Jesus rested in the tomb after the work of redemption on the cross was complete. And when he returns, we will rest with him in eternal Sabbath after the work of his kingdom is complete. Sabbath rest has found its culmination in the Lord Jesus. So we're no longer bound to, to keep a Sabbath day. We have been set free from the law. Now, of course, 
I'm going to tell you to keep a Sabbath and, and take a day off for your health and well-being and, and, and to take that day and to focus on the Lord. Of course, that's good, good practice. But, but our true rest, our true Sabbath is found in Jesus. Matthew 11, verse 28, what does Jesus say? Come to me. Come to me, all you are uh, heavy laden, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Not, not one day of the week. Not two weeks in Mallorca in the summer or whatever it may be. Jesus, every day, every moment of the, of the year, Jesus is saying, I will give you rest. So we can stop striving. We can stop wrestling. We can lay our burdens down with Jesus and find rest in him. Religion can't save you. Trying to be good can't save you. Trying to be more and do more can't save you. Those things only lead to being crushed by the weight of your failure and being worn out from trying. So instead, I invite you just to turn to Jesus, just trust in him. And he's going to give you rest and healing and restoration. But Jesus isn't finished teaching. <laughs> Can you imagine how awful it would be in our culture if this kind of thing happened? You'd be like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Jesus isn't finished. And he's still in the synagogue. And now he comes in with some teaching about the kingdom. He's taken the old blurry 1996 pictures of Pluto and he's bringing in the sharp high-res uh, 2016 images of Pluto. So we've seen the compassion of Jesus. We've heard this correction by Jesus. And finally, we see the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus. Let me read verses 18 to 21. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Unto what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now notice that Jesus says, therefore, or that Luke says, therefore. In other words, the explanation that he gives about the kingdom of God is related to what he has just done in healing this woman and the correction that he has just given to the leader of the synagogue. Remember, everything Jesus said and did had kingdom significance. Jesus' ministry was both displaying and declaring the kingdom of God. And so he uses two analogies to describe what the kingdom is like. Firstly, it's like a mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed in Jesus' time was considered to be the smallest of seeds a tiny seed that, that seems insignificant, and yet when it is planted, it grows into a tree. Jesus mentions growth, but his main emphasis, I think, is, 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 on, is on the beginning that it is very small, and on the end that it is very large. Small beginnings, large endings. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is growing. But not only does this mustard seed grow into a large tree, it grows large enough so that birds come along and start making their nests in it. This isn't just a marginal tree. This is a tree that, that ends up providing uh, refuge and, and support for life. The kingdom is growing, and it is growing to provide a home and a place of life for all who seek refuge in it. Then Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like yeast. Now, you might think, why is Jesus talking about trees and yeast? Well, remember, he's an excellent teacher, and he's using imagery that his audience would have been easily able to relate to. You see, the yeast, the leaven in, in bread, correct me if I'm wrong, James, is the smallest ingredient. You don't need a lot. 
Only a tiny amount goes a long way in making the dough grow and rise, right? Now, three measures of flour, he says, is, I, I, I uh, looked this up, it's about 22 kilograms of flour. So that's a big loaf of bread that Jesus is making. It's huge, huge amount of flour. And at this point, uh, uh, sorry, his point is that, that even the smallest amount of yeast would be enough to leaven this huge amount of flour. Small beginnings, large endings. The kingdom of God is spreading, spreading like yeast through dough. In other words, Jesus' explanation of the kingdom of God is that it is growing and spreading. The kingdom of God is growing and spreading. See, we need that clearer view of the kingdom of God. We need a sharper image of Jesus and the gospel and what God is doing in the world. The kingdom of God has come with Jesus and, and when he heals this woman, it's not only of huge benefit to, and a help to her, it is a sign that when the kingdom grows and spreads to its fullest, it will mean healing and restoration for people and the complete and final defeat of Satan. Just as Jesus has, has healed and restored her, and just as he has freed her from the bounds of Satan, when the kingdom is fully grown and fully expanded and fully spread, it will mean healing and restoration for, for all the people. It will mean the complete and final defeat of Satan. Now, the kingdom of God begins as a, a slow process of, of developing a people of God. And it began with the death of Jesus, right? And only when the Holy Spirit's work to build the church is complete will Jesus establish God's literal, physical kingdom on a renewed earth at his second coming. That's where we're headed. And the healing of this woman, who is so, so dear to Jesus, is a precursor to the day when, when Jesus' followers will receive glorified bodies. Mine's just going to have a heap of like metal parts <laughs> cast to the sides that are no longer in me. Um, the healing of this woman is just a precursor to what's coming. And, and when these people rejoice... Uh, that this woman has been freed from her bondage, they're going to rejoice a million times more when Jesus defeats Satan completely. The slow growth of the mustard seed, the, the, the arduous work of the baker kneading the yeast into the dough. There's a metaphors for the gradual but inevitable work of the gospel. And listen, this is our encouragement. The kingdom of God has come and it is growing and spreading. The coming of Jesus was like the sprinkling of yeast into the flour. I don't know if you sprinkle it in. You probably just tip a bit in. I'm not sure, but I'm glad people know because I like bread. But um, the coming of Jesus, like the yeast has been put in. And now that it's in there, it's going to keep spreading. And there's nothing can stop it. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So be encouraged. Everything you do for Jesus will count. It's all going in the same direction. That friend that you imperfectly love, but do your best to love, but a lot of times fail loving, and you try to show and share the gospel with, but a lot of times fail and sometimes succeed at, that's going to count. That family member that you really want to know Jesus, but you keep forgetting to pray to, and sometimes pray for him perfectly, that's going to count. Even our suffering will count for something. So if you are in Jesus, you're on the right side of history, even though it doesn't look like it. You could... You could look at that woman, bent over double and two, unable to stand up, awkwardly having to turn her head to even talk to people. 
And you might think, that's a lost cause. How is that evidence of the kingdom of God? And God takes that, or Jesus takes that and says, just what do you see what I'm going to do? You could take the tiny mustard seed, dry and shrivel, and you bury it in the, the, the dirt, and you might think, that's done. That's never going to amount to anything. But the seed grows. The yeast spreads. This morning on the side of this building, which says more about us than it does uh, about anything else, there was a, a plant growing out of the wall, a tiny hole in the wall, and there was a plant growing out of it. A seed falls into a hole in a wall, Life comes, the seed grows, the yeast spreads. All our efforts for Jesus, all our obedience to him, all our suffering, none of it will be wasted. Jesus is building his church because God is growing and spreading his kingdom. Think how insignificant the crucifixion of Jesus must have seemed to the Romans. Those guys weren't bothered. This is just one crucifixion of one other guy among Thousands upon thousands across the Roman Empire. So insignificant. Or think of from the point of view of the Jews. This is just one more heretic got rid of. One more blasphemer we've silenced. But yet when Jesus was buried in that tomb, he was like that seed planted in the ground. He was like the yeast hidden in the flower. To die and be buried was the way that the fullness of Jesus was revealed. All seemed lost. All hope was gone. But then the power of God raised him from the dead and unleashed a new world. Do you realize this has been a, a revolution that has been sweeping across the globe ever since? It cannot stop. It will not stop until the kingdom of healing and restoration and the defeat of Satan is completely fulfilled. The kingdom of of God is spreading and growing. And I've been thinking a lot about this woman this week, my sister. This woman's your sister. Isn't that cool? And I can't wait to meet our sister someday and ask her, what was that like? What was it like when you heard the voice of Jesus and you realized that, that he was speaking to you from across the room? What was it like when you, you felt his gentle touch in your arm slowly raising you up and, and you stood up straight and realized you could stand up straight and realized you were looking at Jesus I want to ask her what it'll be like, and, and I can imagine that she'll probably tell me to look around and say, look at this complete and fulfilled kingdom of God. Look. And it will be like I've been looking at blurry pictures my whole life. <laughs> and in that moment, we will see Jesus far clearer than the clearest high-resolution photos. We, like our sister, will see him face to face. The one who sees us in our suffering, the one who saves us, not religion. So, so my prayer is that we would marvel at the compassion of Jesus and, and, and look forward to, desire the coming of his kingdom. May the Holy Spirit just do that work in us. Uh, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for uh, Luke, <laughs> for his faithfulness, Thank you, you inspired him to take on the work he did of recording these events. We want to thank you for your word that without which we wouldn't know of your compassion. We wouldn't see Jesus. Uh, Father, I thank you for your immense compassion towards us. Father, I pray that this wouldn't be like an abstract, abstract, abstract concept this morning. I pray that it would be real to us. Holy Spirit, would you make it real in our hearts that you have compassion towards us. Thank you, Lord, that, that when we were 
weighed down by the weight of sin, when we were twisted, when we were bound by Satan, that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, and uh, raised us up, straightened us up to see him face to face. Lord, may we never lose the amazingness of your compassion towards us. Father, I pray that we would see even our own salvation as evidence that your kingdom is growing and spreading. Lord, may we long for that day when, when your kingdom covers the whole earth. Father, we long to look around us and see your kingdom everywhere. Father, we long for the, the complete healing and restoration of the human race and, and for the final defeat of Satan. So Lord, we just pray, come Lord Jesus. Come and, and finally complete your kingdom work. Father, may we, those of us who are struggling with all kinds of burdens, with feeling crushed by sin, uh, failure, loneliness, whatever it is, Lord, Father, may we receive your words, be freed this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we can be freed in you. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this symbolic meal of bread and wine, which we're about to receive, to remind us uh, of the ultimate compassion, the ultimate act of compassion, the ultimate act of setting us free. Lord, when we take this bread and wine this morning, would you renew us, restore us? May, may it be like you're raising us to stand up straight again. Um, may we see you face to face as we eat the bread and drink the wine this morning. And it's in your name we ask it, Lord Jesus. Because when you speak, the bounds of Satan fall away. When you speak, all the powers uh, and spiritual forces listen and obey. Creation listens and obeys. We pray in your name, Jesus, because who else's name are we going to pray in? We have no hope without you. Amen. And we are going.